Well, good morning to you. It is a privilege to stand before you today and to be able to share a word that I really believe the Lord laid on my heart, a word of encouragement. I trust it'll be a word of life. And the title is Unfailing Faithfulness. But let's open in prayer before we get into the word. Father, I thank you that today is a day of privilege, that we can come around your word and share in it together. Lord, I pray that you would bless this word, that you would break it open. Lord, I pray that I'd become less and that you would become more in this moment and that we could fellowship together with you, that your presence would be there with your people in every home. Lord, that there wouldn't be a single person listening to, the, to this broadcast that wouldn't be touched by your spirit this morning. May you minister life and life in abundance to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Unfailing faithfulness, not just faithfulness, but unfailing faithfulness. And this is something that the Lord is to us. His unfailing faithfulness is, is an absolute fact, it's a given. His word is not just a word, it is life. It is sure and secure, it is forever settled in the heavens and on earth. But there are times where we become desensitized to the Lord's faithfulness. Invariably, when we're going through trauma or we, we're struggling with fear or there's been some kind of something happening in our lives and we lose sight of the Lord's faithfulness, it remains ever true, but we sometimes struggle to connect with his faithfulness. And what I wanna share with you today is a reminder of God's faithfulness and to build that up within your heart and your life and your spirit, but also to speak somewhat to our own faithfulness to the Lord. He is faithful to us. He's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his covenant. But there's also an expectation that we would be faithful to him and to his word and to our covenant with him. And to give a description of faithfulness, I would wanna read this to you. It is the concept of unfailingly remaining loyal to someone or something and putting that loyalty into consistent practice regardless of circumstance. So you have unfailing loyalty, and that is the Lord saying, from of old I've loved you, with loving kindness I've drawn you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Then we've got that uh, consistent practice, and, and that is the Lord saying that in him there's no darkness or shadow of turning. And then regardless of circumstance, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the Lord has given us so much promise in his word of his faithfulness towards us. And what I wanna do today is build a bridge of understanding. First of all, a reminder of God's faithfulness as we build the bridge from one side to the middle. But then also, an understanding of our faithfulness towards him, building a bridge from the other side to the middle to meet and complete the bridge that we can enjoy God's faithfulness and live a faithful life, a life ourselves. Now, the Lord proclaims faithful as part of his own name. And this is found in Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I stand, now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and, right, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Faithful and true, not just a title, but a description of how he conducts himself. That is the name, Faithful and True. We might have names and it's more of a title and there's always a meaning behind our name. 
But when the Lord gives himself a name, you know that he has invested so much into naming himself, whatever it is. And when he called himself faithful and true, he was proclaiming himself, but also describing the way that he would conduct himself in everything that he does. So my first point this morning is quite simply, God is faithful. God is faithful. Now, God is not just faithful because he has to be. God is faithful because he wants to be. It's actually the desire of his heart. And one of the ways that he showed us his faithfulness was by dealing with men in covenant. And covenant is the Lord's way of reassuring us how genuinely invested he is in keeping his word and in being with us and, and, and in having fellowship with us. And the first covenant that was given was given to Abraham. In um, Genesis 17, 7, we read, and I will establish my covenant between me and you. This was with the Lord and Abraham. And your descendants after you and your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And so the Lord initiates a covenant with Abraham. And that was a reassurance, not just to Abraham, but to the descendants after him, because when the Lord speaks, it's done, it's settled. He spoke and the heavens were created. And yet he enters into a specific agreement called a covenant, which is basically an unbreakable promise. And he gives that unbreakable promise to Abraham. And in the fullness of time, Isaac comes and Jacob and the nation is birthed and, and born and grows, and the Lord's wo word is utterly fulfilled in that initial covenant. But he doesn't stop at that covenant. He brings forth a new and a better covenant. Now, he prophesies about this in Jeremiah, but word for word, that new and better covenant is quoted in the book of Hebrews because it is the new and better covenant we have in Jesus Christ through his blood. And I'm gonna read this portion of scripture to you. And please know that even though I'm quoting out of Hebrews, this is out of the book of Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming. This is Hebrews 8, verse 8, and then 10 to 12. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So the Lord puts down in a very descriptive way the new and better covenant that he is going to have with man through his son's sacrifice on the cross. And the first covenant was insufficient. It was fulfilled in Jesus. The first covenant was a covenant of atonement. Now atonement is essentially a carrying over. So every year the priest would go into the Holy of Holies with, with blood and put it on the mercy seat and the sins of the people would be carried over for another year. And this carrying over process happened until Jesus came and when Jesus came, and the veil was torn, and he took his blood into the heavenly, into the heavenlies, then atonement moved to forgiveness and adoption. 
And that is the new and better covenant. Forgiveness and adoption, not just atonement. And so the Lord is so true to us that he sheds his own blood on our behalf to bring us into a new covenant, a new unbreakable promise, the surety of his unfailing faithfulness towards us. But not only did he create this new covenant for us, he gives us so many promises in the word of the inheritance we have in this life, not just the life to come, but in this life, the inheritance he bought for us through his blood. And I just wanna read a couple of scriptures to you. And there are so very many that I've just taken four, but they just give this description of his faithfulness towards us in the new covenant, his unbreakable promise. Because it is impossible for God to lie. Impossible, that is exactly what the word says. The word even says in uh, Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and he will not do, or has he spoken and he will not make it good? So when Jesus is speaking in John 10, 10, and he says the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I've come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly, that is a sure word to you. When he says, uh, when the writer of Hebrews says in uh, Hebrews 7 verse 25, Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost, that's completely, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Save completely. How many of you are still struggling with your thoughts, are struggling with fear, are struggling with habits and repetitive sins even in your life? Here's the promise that he is able to save you utterly, not just in your spirit, but do a redemptive work in your soul. He is not a man that he should lie. Romans 8 verse 38 speaks about the love of God. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, this is Romans 8 verse 38 to 39. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from his love. That is the promise of the new covenant. And one more, John 16, 33. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. So these are just four, four of, 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 of the most amazing amount of promises that the Lord has given us. He is faithful, and he will forever remain faithful. Even as I said right in the beginning, in him there is no darkness or shadow of turning. He will consistently put into practice, regardless of circumstance, his unfailing love towards us. So the Lord has put in place his faithfulness. It is sure and secure. I wanna speak some towards our faithfulness to him, that we can connect and feel secure in his faithfulness, building that bridge from his side and from our side. And the example that I'd like to use that I believe really simplifies this, it really just helps to, to, to keep it simple, because I don't wanna bombard you today, I don't want you to feel overwhelmed, is the situation where just after Jesus' crucifixion, 
and his resurrection, he appeared to his disciples for 40 days. And after that 40-day period, he said to his disciples at the time of his ascension that they were to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. And that is what they did. Very simply, that's what they did. They waited in Jerusalem in a specific place, the upper room. And not only did they sit there and, 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 and wait for the Lord, it wasn't a passive waiting. It wasn't apathetic. There was an activity that took place. And this activity is found in Acts 1 verse 14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. And so they had assembled together, they were in Jerusalem, they were waiting for the Lord and they were in prayer. This brings me to my second point, which is our faithful, faithfulness to God in prayer. And so the Lord has given us a tool a practical tool, something that we are responsible to do before him, and that is to pray. And the best place I can start with regards to prayer, it's a vast subject, but there are five specific scriptures I wanna focus on, and I believe they, they lead into each other beautifully to bring a picture of prayer that I pray would be fresh to you and would inspire you to get into a healthy and consistent prayer life. Now, where I wanna start is with Jesus himself. There's no better place to start than the one who came as God and then lived upon this earth, fully God and fully man, gave his life for us and then passed into glory, opening the way for us. Now, Jesus spoke and the worlds came into being. The worlds were created through him. And there's a fascinating scripture that speaks about this world-creating God that we serve. And it's found in Luke 5, verse 16. It says, so Jesus himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. Now, doesn't that seem like, like a little bit of a discordance? Why would Jesus withdraw by himself often into the wilderness to pray if when he spoke, instantly something would happen? When he spoke to the fig tree, what happened? It withered. When the enemy tempted him, he said, speak to the stones to become bread. And Jesus wouldn't. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. The enemy only tempted him with what he knew Jesus would be able to do. The enemy's not gonna tempt us even with something we can't do. He's not gonna come with a temptation, oh, pick that car up and show everyone how strong you are. It's not gonna be a temptation because you're not gonna be capable of doing it. There's no doubt that the Lord's capability was that he could literally speak to any situation and see instant change coming forth. But instead, he leads the way as an example to us that he often withdrew into the wilderness to pray, to seek the Lord, his Father, to commune with the Lord, to seek for guidance. Now I ask you if Jesus himself is withdrawing by himself, uh, if Jesus himself is withdrawing to pray, shouldn't we also often withdraw to pray? So Luke verse, uh, Luke uh, 5 verse 16 is an indicator of how Jesus conducted himself with prayer. 
But then the question is asked, how did he pray? Now, he taught the disciples the Lord's Prayer, but is there a scripture in the Bible that actually gives an indication of the way that Jesus prayed? That not only do we know he goes into the wilderness to pray, how did he conduct himself in those private moments of prayer? And I'm very pleased to be able to tell you that not only can I create that tension, I can answer that question for you. It is so beautifully described in Hebrews 5 verse 7, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. That is a description of Jesus. Every his there is a capital H. It is a description of how Jesus himself prayed to the Father with such passion. You see, Jesus, when he prayed, he prayed with all of his heart. It's not about the action of vehement cries and tears. That is the outward manifestation of the depth with which he was praying. And at times it would come out with vehement cries and tears, but he was heard for his godly fear. Now that fear is not a scared kind of fear. It was translated fear, but the Greek word is eulabia, which means reverence or honor or respect. And so Jesus in his prayers to his father was heard because of his honoring and his respect. And he prayed with all of his heart. And that's another clue for us on how we are to conduct ourselves in prayer. Often, like Jesus did, and when we pray, to pray with all of our heart. You see, deep calls too deep. It's not going through the motions of just saying the words or having a, a pre-prepared prayer that you, you, you just go through the motions of reading. Where's the heart behind that? If you are, have got a pre-prepared prayer, but you are reading it with all of your heart, amen, continue. But don't bring some kind of religious overture, some kind of religious uh, expression to prayer. Keep it organic, keep it from the depth, keep it from your heart. That is how Jesus himself prayed. Now the third scripture I wanna share with you is Luke 18 verse one. It says, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And that is Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Now that scripture's got more of an impact for me based on the two scriptures I just shared with you. Because he's teaching out of his life. He did this. And so Jesus goes on to share the parable of the unjust judge after he shares that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And to paraphrase that parable, the unjust judge is dealing with a widow who's coming to him asking for, for justice on her matter. And the unjust judge doesn't care for God, nor does he care for the widow, but he gives her what she's asking, lest she weary him. And Jesus goes on to say, how much more will your father answer his children who cry out to him day and night? Though he bears with them long, I tell you, he will answer them speedily. That is a promise of the new covenant. Now, the next one I wanna share with you is a little bit more meaty. And I ask you to bear with me, but it's profound. And it was revolutionary in my own life when the Lord brought this to my attention. And the scripture is found in Zechariah 10 verse one. 
says, ask the Lord for rain in the time of the spring rain. The Lord will make flashing clouds. He will give them showers of rain, grass in the field for everyone. Now, if you read that quickly, it'll pass you by. Ask the Lord for rain in the time of the rain. Why? Why would we pray for rain in the season of rain? If it's the rainy season, we don't need to pray for rain. It's gonna rain anyway. It's the rainy season. At least that's the human logic that we bring to the equation of our circumstances around us. The same applies to the word of God or to even the promises of God. Remember those four scriptures I read right at the beginning. He came to give us life and life in abundance. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to, to the Lord through him, that, that nothing can separate us from his love, that he's given us his peace. Now, we cannot be apathetic with the promises of God. Even according to this scripture, we have the promise. Now, we've got to trust the Lord in prayer for that promise. We've got to say, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done. I trust you to receive that you will save me to the uttermost, that you will help me through this trial that I'm, I'm dealing with, the way I'm battling and I'm struggling. I need your assistance, Lord. Instead of just having the assumption, oh, here's the promise, God's gonna do it because he's God. Jesus himself is praying often with all of his heart. How can we then be apathetic and then expect to receive the promises of God in their fullness coming forth in our life? Here we even have a scripture where the Lord is saying, pray for rain in the season of rain. I'll give you an example. Elijah, it says in James 5, um, verse 16 to 18, I'm not gonna read to you, I'm just gonna paraphrase, but it, but it says that the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, that Elijah had a nature like ours, and he prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth, and then he prayed it would rain, and it did rain. But the full story of what actually happened there is found in 1 Kings 18, where Elijah had prophesied the drought. It had been in effect for three and a half years. The Lord says to Elijah, the time for the drought to end has come. He goes and presents himself to Ahab, a most unrighteous king indeed. And he says to Ahab, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. Now what happened was, he knew from the Lord the time had come for the fulfillment of the promise. He goes to the king and he prophesies, I hear the sound of the abundance of rain. When he says that, there's not a cloud in the sky, there's nothing. He then goes to Mount Carmel with his servants and it says that he bows his head to his knees seven times. Every time he does it, he sends his servant to go and look to see if there's clouds. And nothing is there for the first six times. Only after the seventh time of him praying is there a cloud in the sky, the size of a fist. And then he sends word to Ahab, go now, lest the rain stop you. So he prophesies, he knows the time is ripe. But what does he do? He prays for rain, literally, in the season of rain. And he takes that promise in prayer and he gets the breakthrough, and then the fullness of that word comes forth. Daniel did the exact same thing. He discerned that the time had come in Daniel 9, out of the book of Jeremiah, that 70 years had passed for the people of Israel to be in exile, that it was time for the exiles to return. It says he discerned the times by the book of Jeremiah, and he puts on sackcloth, 
and he fasts and he humbles himself, even though he didn't have anything to do with the sins of the people. And he stands as an intercessor, and what he prays is a prayer of repentance and coming back to God and reminding the Lord of his promises that he would bring his people back to their land after a time of exile. And he was born for that moment amongst many others. But the word was the Lord would restore his people to their land. And yet Daniel got down in prayer and prayed it and stood in agreement for that word to come to pass. So I trust now that when I read Zechariah 10 verse one, that you ask the Lord for rain in the, in the time of the latter rain, that it makes more sense and that you yourself in your life will realize that the promises of God are in him, yes, and in him, amen. But add your own amen by praying those promises into being and trusting him for his faithfulness to come through on your behalf because you are building your part of the bridge in prayer. Now, there's one more scripture I wanna share with you concerning prayer. And this is found in James 5 verse 13. It says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. It doesn't say let him run and get help. It doesn't say go and get counseling. It doesn't say go and get advice. It doesn't say mother, wail and, and cry. And I'm not taking away from the depths that people are going through. But the Bible tells us that the first point of stop, the first station for the train, if there's suffering in your life of any kind, is prayer. It's not to take away from getting extra help. In Galatians 6 verse, 6 verse 5, it says, no, no, it's 6 verse 2, it says, bury one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There is this place where we are to stand together. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. If you have love one to another, there has to be that expressed love. There has to be that help and that support. But Galatians 6 verse 2, just before 6 verse 5, says, each one shall bear his own load. So there is an initial responsibility, regardless of your suffering or what it is. Are you praying? Or have you run to someone else first? I want to encourage you, pray. And then if you are still not coping, get the help you need, get the support you need. Ask someone else to pray with you. Go and see someone. Um, go in and, and, and just have that input that you know that you need. You know if you're not coping. But be sure that you yourself are investing yourself in prayer and that you're not wondering why things are not working out or that you're not breaking through, but you're not bringing your part to the table. I'm sorry to tell you this, but as a Christian, you have a responsibility, not from my words, but according to his word, that you must pray. You must pray. Jesus himself did it often. He did it with all of his heart. He calls us to do the same and to not lose heart. We are even to pray in the season where we, 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 we know that the time of the promise has come. And let me tell you, from the time Jesus shed his blood, that is now. Well, from that moment, the spiritual realm is ripe with his promises because the sacrifice has been made and we can trust him to fulfill in our life what he wants to do, but let us bring our part to the table in prayer. Now, my third point is our faithfulness to God in standing where he placed us. Because when Jesus said 
to his disciples, wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Not only did they do that, they were obedient to it, they did it in prayer. Now, I've spoken about prayer, but they waited in a specific place. And it wasn't just Jerusalem. It was the upper room. In Acts 1 verse 4, it says, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you've heard from me. This was in the upper room. Now, they waited there for 10 days. I say that um, confidently because Pentecost in the Jewish feast time took place 50 days after Passover. Jesus ascended after 40 days, which meant that they waited for 10 days. And it was a faithful waiting, but it was a specific place, which was the upper room. And I love the picture of the upper room because it was obviously a story above the ground level. Now, the ground level you could understand to be a very busy place, a marketplace, um, a, a bustling city, noise, distraction, temptation. And yet they found themselves in prayer in a place above the noise of the city. And I wanna leave this picture with you that the upper room in our lives is to be in the world, but not of the world. The world around us is like the ground floor. And there are times where we need to engage with the world. You gotta go down, you gotta work, you, you are, are, are in the world. But even that is good because, because we are salt and light. But we get our saltiness. We get that impartation of, of the life of God, which is the light of men, by remaining in the upper room in our lives. The upper room is a place of purity. It's a place of dedication to the Lord. It's a place of separation from the world. The book of James says, pure and undefiled religion is this, to keep oneself unspotted from the world, to visit orphans and widows in their need, but to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And that's why I love this picture of the upper room. They weren't waiting on the ground level. They were still in the city. They weren't separated from mankind. They were gonna get an impartation from the Lord, which they would then take to the people on the ground floor, which is the world around us. Billy Graham said, dress as the world, but do not undress as the world. And so there is a, pl a place for us to, to be a Greek to the Greeks, Roman to the Romans, to, to be someone relatable, but not a, a compromising person. And that is what the upper room represents. It's a place of no compromise. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Colossians 3, the whole chapter. I'm not going to read it all here, but I highly encourage you to please, after this message, do yourself a favor and go and read that whole passage. It is one of the most distinct and clear references of a separation of an upper room life to a ground floor existence. And uh, even in verse one to two, which I will read to you, it says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So it begins with this heavenly mindset. Don't put yourself in an earthly mindset. Then um, from verse five, it says, put to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Verse eight says, put off anger, wrath, 
malice, blasphemy, and filthy language out of your mouths. It really speaks of the defilement of the world. But then from verse 12 to 17, we are encouraged to put on tender mercies, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, to put on love, which is the bond of perfection, to, to let the peace of God rule in our hearts, to which also we were called in one body and be thankful, and to let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. It's such a wonderful chapter on the description of staying in an upper room mentality in consistent prayer, regardless of circumstance, for the promise of the Father to come in your life. Now, what was the promise of the Father for them? The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What is the promise that you are trusting for? And how are you going to, from this point, trust for it, practically speaking? Where are you going to be in your trust? You cannot live in a ground floor mentality, being defiled by the world, and expect to receive that promise coming forth in your life. There is a responsibility to climb the stairs to the upper room, to separate yourself from this world and its ways. And then, not just that, then to engage in consistent prayer to see his promises come forth. Now, I just wanna share one more example with you, and that is something about the Roman army's sandals. They had a secret weapon. Their armor was magnificent for the, for, for the, the warfare that they engaged in but they had a secret weapon. And their secret weapon was metal studs on their sandals. Now their sandals were, were called Caligae. And what would happen is, waves of enemies would come against them and they would lock their shields together, they would lean into their shields. But when the enemy hit, they would hit with such force that if they didn't have those metal studs on their, on their, on their sandals, they likely would have been pushed back. But having those metal studs, they were able to stand their ground. And I want faithfulness and your idea of faithfulness in your own heart to be like the studs on those sandals. That you will dig into standing consistently regardless of the circumstances you might be faced with. No matter how hard they're hitting you, no matter how hard your situation is hitting you, you will lean into what is coming against you because you are leaning upon the one who will never fail you, who will never forsake you, and who will never leave you. And that unfailing faithfulness is something that we can then present to the Lord just as he is ever unfailing to us. So I pray that this will minister to you today, that God is utterly unfailing, but that we too do not have to be apathetic in the midst of our overwhelming circumstances. We can press in by prayer and we can separate ourselves from the world. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for you being God in our lives. I pray, Lord, for every person that heard this message that they would be linked in with you. Lord, that this word would encourage them, that it would not fall to the ground, it would not be an idle word in people's lives. I pray they would take it seriously. Lord, I pray that as people begin to engage in prayer, they will find new life in their prayer life as well as new life in their relationship with you. 
Lord, I pray for those who are battling with an earthly mindset. They find themselves on the ground floor of this world, that you will lift them to the upper room, that you will have mercy upon them. Lord, that you will show them your grace, that you will be with them. Lord, that there will not be a day where they will not know your manner, your love, and your tender care, but that you will also keep us inspired to keep pressing forward, that we would lean into the circumstances coming because the strength is not ours, it is yours, because we are strong when we are weak, because it is your grace making a way where there seems to be no way. I bless you today, Lord, and I leave your precious people in your hands. I pray you'll minister to them deeply and wonderfully. May your peace and your mercy and your never-failing compassions be upon them, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.